Hello, my name is Brad McIntyre, and you're listening to the Cultivated Playwright Podcast. This is episode number 36. So I do not usually do interviews on this particular uh, podcast. The two or three people that consistently listen to me uh, know this, that I usually just ramble on all by myself. I have an idea, then I, I get out the microphone and record it, and that's that. That's how the podcast is usually set up. And most of the episodes um, are around 15 to 25 minutes uh, most of the time. Today is going to be an exception. Today I have a rather long uh, interview where I bring on a guest and I ask that guest questions. And it's actually going to be a two-part thing. So it's going to be this episode and the next episode of this podcast. Uh, The reason for this is because my guest and myself are both rather verbose. We're both long-winded. And I had a bunch of questions. Uh, So... In this, in this podcast, I, I want to introduce you to Mr. David Hopkins. Um, David Hopkins and I have known each other for, ooh, maybe a decade and a half now. Maybe. I don't know, 14, 15 years. He came out to see a production uh, that I directed uh, through my theater company, Audacity Theater Lab, uh, many moons ago. And uh, he approached me in the lobby, and we started talking. And I learned that he, at the time, was writing for comic books and had been a teacher, and uh, we kind of hit it off. I, I found him to be a very just nice, kind of charming, uh, just very kind of quietly amusing guy, <laughs> for lack of a better way of saying it. And I've kind of followed his journey off and on. Um, he and I have been supporters of each other uh, over the years. He's kept up with my theater activities and my solo uh, performance work and uh, my own self-publishing adventures. And I've watched him um, move from uh, one pastime to another pastime. And the reason I wanted to get him onto the podcast today is, first of all, he is sort of a, a, a shining example of what a lot of uh, hard work and ingenuity uh, can get. It can get for you if you're an indie artist. He is a self-publishing fantasy writer at the moment. And uh, he kind of excels in it. He, he gets better and better, you know, <laughs> by the project, he gets better and better. I, I have watched him in recent years really get his act together and um, really double down on what he wants to do. And what he wants to do is become a fantasy writer. He, he, he writes uh, in that kind of sword and sorcery vein of uh, fiction, uh, you know, invented worlds with dragons and you know, fey folk and all that. Anyway, it, it's, it was really fun to talk with him. In this first episode that you're about to listen to, we kind of talk about his past and him coming up as a writer and learning uh, what he really kind of wanted to do and how he kind of explored a bunch of different paths. Uh, the reason I relate with David Hopkins, uh, we overlap in a lot of regards. We both love Shakespeare quite a bit. Um, we both are writers uh, we're both indie artists, and we both kind of have bounced all over the place for many, many years. So in this first this first of a two-part series, I'm going to talk with David, and we're going to go way back to the beginning of him uh, getting interested in writing, and him writing for comic books, and uh, journalism, and doing TED Talks, and short stories, and uh, growing an, an audience uh, slowly and surely, and then... Uh, his background in education and in marketing and kind of like so on and so forth. And then we'll, in the the next episode, we'll talk more about him uh, in in present time. And uh, we'll talk more about his his current project, which is called Dryad's Crown. Uh, Dryad's Crown currently is a nine-part novella series, uh, each book being between 60 and 80 pages, and uh, it is in a world that he invented himself. It is, uh, I believe the world is called Efre Usul, if I have pronounced it correctly. Uh, it is his own Westeros. It is his own Middle Earth, and it is where he has set his books. And uh, he has uh, you know, fostered quite an audience and keeps on top of it. He's on top of his social media. 
And he's slowly building all nine of those um, novellas into one huge 700-plus page masterwork, this huge uh, fantasy fiction novel, uh, The Dryad's Crown. Um, anyway, we'll talk about that more in depth in the next episode. Uh, today, I want to talk uh, about him kind of coming up in the world and, and what he's been doing over the last 20 years, bouncing around, basically leading up to what he does right now. Um, and I think it's a really good lesson to put it in context, it's a really good lesson of following an indie artist, how nothing has gone to waste. Everything seems like a a sideways move. Um, his whole career to me is fascinating because he, he it doesn't look like he was going any particular direction. It just looks like he was throwing everything at the wall to see what would stick. And to some degree, that's what he did. On the other hand, Everything kind of built on top of itself. Everything feeds in to what has made David Hopkins, you know, the indie artist that he is today. So uh, let's listen in. I, I want to apologize in advance for the audio. <laughs> we, we recorded this on Skype and uh, I've done my best to try to uh, fix it. But uh, just bear with me in this episode. Cool. And uh, I'll, I'll pipe back in at the end uh, and, and do the, the outro. All right. Enjoy. Let's just start with how did you get interested in writing? Like, where, where did that begin? It's an interesting question because it's sort of like, at what stage in your life did you get a taste for oatmeal? Or when did you uh, first discover that you liked um, girls instead of boys? Or that uh, your sense of balance is terrible? I don't know. I mean, like, it's it's one of these things where um, you, you discover this. I think there's a two-step journey there. I think there is you first sort of get imprinted on particular books and stories and for me, it was things like Choose Your Own Adventure books. It was Stephen King. It was, you know, Dragonlance fantasy novels and D&D and all that stuff. And then there's like the second stage where you actually realize that people do this. Like it's not like it's not just that these stories somehow just come to you, but there was actually a person on the other end that made choices and put the words together in a way that was appealing. And then maybe there's a third stage where you go, oh, I could do this. <laughs> and so I think for me, it probably came very early and it actually probably came when I was reading comics uh, because there's something about in the comic book field where on that first splash page, you get the list of all the uh, the credits of who all wrote stuff. And so now you begin oh, to yeah. follow yeah. particular people. And I was always... I, I realized at a very young age that all my favorite comic books were written by Louise Simonson. And so if a Louise Simonson comic book came up, I was like, okay, I'm going to like this because I like, I like her stuff. And, and then, you know, you start realizing, oh, this would be really cool to do. But then it takes like, I don't know, at least for me, it took literally decades to actually figure out where in this writing mess I actually kind of felt most comfortable and felt like I fit in. I remember when I was a kid reading comic books and I wanted to draw the comic books way harder than I thought it was. When I was a kid, I was like, oh, I want to do that. And I re remember trying to draw buildings for the first time, not even the outside of the buildings, the inside interiors. And it just, oh my goodness. I was like, oh, there's like a serious artfulness to this. There's a, there's a, iceberg of knowledge and yeah. skill to catch up with uh and it being a, a huge kind of i remember actually thinking to myself oh this this would be cool oh my gosh this would be difficult <laughs> at the same time like, <laughs> like simultaneously yeah. well and it's also this realization that um like with comic book art I mean, it's so incredibly hard. And I think you realize that very early in the process. Like anyone who stuck with it understood at a very early age just how hard making a comic book, illustrating a comic book is. I think for novelists, you start off thinking, oh, this isn't that hard. And then it's like once you actually 
maybe years and years later, you go, oh, wait, no, this is hard too. It's just hard in a less obvious way. <laughs> I would agree. I would agree. Yeah, uh, it, playwriting is like that as well. On the outside, if it goes well, people don't see how hard it is underneath. Yes. <laughs> And it's that idea uh, that if you think it's easy, then you probably don't fully understand the field that you're going into yet. Yeah. <laughs> you no, know, I agree with that totally, totally. Well, since, hey, since this podcast is called uh, The Cultivated Playwright, I have to touch on Space to Occupy. Yes, uh, yeah. I, I, have to, I have to ask you about this, because I remember talking about this when we first met in person. I invited you out to see a play, and, and we talked in the lobby. And you told me your background about writing for the theater. And uh, I was wondering if you could just touch on that real quick and kind of the lessons it taught you. Yeah, the way I tell this story has changed over the years. It'd be interesting to see how I talked about it a few years ago versus how I talk about it now. Um, but like, I'm going to generalize theater people for a second, if you don't mind. But theater people also generalize themselves, so I feel like I'm not getting too too dangerous in that. Um, but I have found in my own experience, there's the uh, there's me sort of framing it. I have found in my experience that theater people are willing to like do stuff like if they've got like an open square of concrete, like two pieces of tin, and a flyer like they were like i could put a play together like let's do it and like they're just they're just those kind of people that it's like i don't know they will macgyver a a a theater performance and maybe it's in the dna going all the way back to like the wandering uh theater troops that they're like man we could do this anywhere and um i had a friend who basically had a open space to do a play but did not have a play and she was like I, I i would love for you to write something which was weird that she asked me because at that point i had written nothing i had i had done some some essays and i i, had, I was a writer like online uh but i wasn't a fiction writer and in her infinite naivete or wisdom we will decide she just like you you can write a play for me and i was like uh okay what do you want and so she kind of explained the basic idea of the play i that she was thinking kind of a celebration of life she was speaking in very sort of general themes and so i was like okay well <laughs> i think i could do this like by next year we should be ready and she was like, oh, no, this is being performed in four months. Like, like you have four months, less than four months, because we got a cast and perform. you've got, you know, like a month or two to write a play and you've never done it before. And I was young. And so I was like, uh, sure. And so I stayed up like to like. And I don't even think I'm exaggerating. Like we're talking four in the morning. I was teaching at the time and I was just staying up so late, writing, 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 writing. And it turned me into a writer, not a great one, but it turned me into a writer because at the end of it, I hand her this play. And I would say it was probably, it was page count wise, it was a one act play, but because we did put an intermission in there, it was more like act and a half, but calling it an act, it was still very generous. And um, I remember that experience of seeing people on the stage performing the lines that I had written and I hated it. It was such a, it was so painful. <laughs> uh, it, it, it was difficult to <laughs> hand it over to someone else and to have them like, they had their own direction. Like she was like, I was thinking very like black box theater, low on staging, small cast. I mean, I, I was already at that stage writing with limitations in mind like okay we're, we're gonna have to keep this very simple and she had like these huge ideas of like there was a breakdancing troupe that was in the middle of it and large like i, I don't know I, maybe in her head she was like julie Taymor or something like she just had all these great like visual ideas and i'm like I just want to survive this production. Like I, I, I do not have any big ideas with it. And 
I don't know. The funny thing is, though, about that experience is the very next day I woke up kind of hung over from the experience. And that was when I decided I wanted to write comic books because I was like, I won't have to like worry about actors or directors. I can just write my thing. And um, but here's the, here's the here's the epilogue to that story is years later, I went back to that script and I was kind of like cringing like, oh, gosh, I, this this was like, I mean, think about like the first thing you write being performed in front of like people. And I think even like the Fort Worth Star-Telegram wrote a review of it. And I'm like, this should not like it. it is so like you just feel so utterly naked in front of everyone because you're like, I I'm like really early in this this and and all of a sudden it's very public and you're just feeling so vulnerable about it. But years later, I went back and I did find the script and I flipped through it. And after I read it, I was like, you know what? It wasn't that bad. Like, like there were moments I read it. I was like, I mean, it definitely felt like a first script, you know, that was always the thing. And we, we, I, we don't need to talk about this, but what was that um, Zach Braff, that movie that everyone loved the soundtrack? It had Natalie Portman in it. Garden State. Garden State. Oh, that feels like such a first movie to me. Like it. Yeah. It, like and that was my play. My play was very Garden State-esque in that it felt like particularly a male writer's first play or first movie or first script. It had the sort of, you know, disaffected young man who's in between college and the real world. It had the manic pixie dream girl character. You know, it had these <laughs> overly wrought symbols for what life was about. You know, and, and here's a person in their 20s being like, this is the meaning of life. And you're like, wow, you, you figured it out. Good for you. And you're only like 23, 24, and you've already, you've, you've, well, well done, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and there, there are like quirky characters that sort of serve the best interest of the protagonist along the way. And I mean, it was totally like that. And so I remember watching Garden State almost being like bitter about it because I was like, yeah, I know what that is. That, that is a first play <laughs> if ever I've seen one. <laughs> You know what? I heard I heard a, a a talk with a playwright online a couple of weeks ago, and he brought up that, and he, it was his suggestion that emerging playwrights get uh, commissions to do adaptations first. Yes. And uh, the the person that was talking to him asked him why he thought that, and he said, because even if they have the technical skill set to write a good play, they haven't lived enough like right out of college to have anything really, really important to say it, it all their beginning plays are going to be their first plays um, that they're going to look back on later in life and go, Oh, Oh, and look back and pat themselves, their younger selves on the head. And he <laughs> said, he said, but if you take a, if you take a work that's already, you know, an established work and, remake it for the the time period or for the resources available or or what have you that that work is beneficial to the writer because they they have to basically deconstruct how that more experienced writer from the past did it yeah. and then you know carry that lesson forward and then as they as they accumulate life basically experiences and uh you know get beat down some and raise themselves back up and go through a series of experiences they have more to say and they have a, a perspective, like a, more of a voice later on. And I, I agree with it. I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. And well, so. and you and I have talked quite a bit in the past about Shakespeare. I mean, that's what Shakespeare did. His first plays, depending on historical opinion, was probably Henry the Sixth, Part One, and then Henry the Sixth, Part Two, and then Henry the Sixth, Part Three. So he was. He was adapting historical works that probably had earlier works that they're based off of. And there was primary sources that he was, or, you know, there were sources he was working from Hollinshed's uh, history of English history or whatever. And so, yeah, he was writing adaptations. And even his first uh, was a comedy of errors was based off of a Greek comedy, I think, where he basically took the story and yeah, doubled yeah. the twins. Uh, Plautus is uh, the Monochmy or something. Yeah. yeah. 
the monopoly. So, I don't know how to pronounce that, but yeah. But yeah, I mean, here was a guy who his first works were clearly, you know, based off, and that was very common back then anyways. It's just funny that nowadays, because we don't do that, a lot of people's first works feel very similar. Like they feel like adaptations of it. Cause I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's this weird thing where everything sort of evolves into a crab if you give it enough time. <laughs> and I think people's first works all kind of evolve into this crab like thing. That is a, a first play. I mean, I'm sure out there somewhere is a parody of a first play that someone did. Oh, and, there has to be, there has to be. <laughs> It exists. Yeah, I, 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 when I was a sophomore in college, I wrote my first play, uh, a short, like a one act as well. And uh, I continued to tinker with that play for years as I learned more and more about what would work on stage. And it's funny when you were talking, because over time, I've learned to what I call actor proof plays, like <laughs> put context clues in the, into the actual text and into the uh the shape of the scenes to direct the actors anybody that has any clue about it to like make a stronger choice than a weaker choice mm -hmm. uh and it's it's a a subtle thing that they don't teach in playwriting classes but they you you over time you learn to do it because you're like i don't know why they picked that as a choice like i don't know why the actor looking at this as a sane person why would they choose that and i've learned over time there's no accounting for you, you never know what they're what the actor's gonna do sometimes. But you can hedge the bets in your favor, like more and more. And I've learned over time to kind of like do that. But I ended up rewriting that first play into a full length play that I just did that you came and saw it actually. Um the the case of Raw Giant Monster uh, yes. that I did in November. That's based on an earlier play called Arsenic and Roses that I wrote in college twenty some odd years ago. Mm -hmm. that i i cannibalized and i if 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 all goes well in life i will bury that first play <laughs> <laughs> out of sight way out of sight oh, i was gonna say one of my big takeaways i think from writing my first play was also as i reread it reread it was first of all comically dark like really really dark like at the time i didn't realize just how dark it was. And I was like, wow, this is really heavy. But I also found that it was kind of what I might call emotionally irresponsible because it was dealing with such dark subject matter in a way that dismissed the lifelong journey that people have to go through in order to deal with the kinds of things that this person was dealing with. Like, you don't just have this transcendent moment and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm better. I've discovered the meaning of, I've discovered meaning in my life. It's like, no, that's highly irresponsible to offer an easy solution at the end of this thing. And I think that that's one thing that where I think we all grow as writers is we don't give our characters easy outs. We give them a path to take. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a direction to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I totally, I totally agree. And, and, uh, yeah, it took me, a, I look back at my early stuff too, and I do the same thing where I'm like, oh, past Brad, you were, you were more callous than <laughs> present Brad. You, you, you were more cavalier with, uh, the, with your character's stuff. What I was going to say a while ago is I was going to segue into comics. So you started writing comics after that. Mm -hmm. Um, what appealed to you about, writing comics, like as a format of writing, as opposed to writing plays and essays? Um, I, I used to joke, I mean, I'm, I'm not in comics anymore, but I, I spent a good 10 years, I think, working in comics. And I used to always joke that one of the best things about comics is that as a writer, you can hide behind the illustrator. You know, they'll see the, the, they'll see the word balloons, but all the writing that I do to you know, create the scenes and stuff, it all gets illustrated away. You know, it all just sort of pops up in in the form of you know, it is visual storytelling. Um, if you have to choose one or the other, comics really is a visual form, and and I almost think like Akira Kurosawa used to talk about how dialogue acts as soundtrack, and I feel almost like um, comics have a similar beat 
to it, depending on how they're written. I mean, there are some indie comics that I think are very text heavy uh, or dialogue heavy in a way that works. Um, but yeah, I liked the idea that I could pass this thing off and it could almost disappear. No one would ever read my script. They would just see the finished product. And if I worked with a good enough <laughs> artist, they could drag the story along. But it also worked because you had someone that essentially was working as your your peer because they would look at things and go, okay, I don't really understand what's going on here. And you'd go, that's because it doesn't make sense. And then you would go back and rework it. <laughs> and, uh, and so there was that sort of thing. I also liked, and this is something that I think theater does very well. I think comics do very well. And I think the book industry does terribly, which is in the world of comics, independent creators are celebrated. Like, if you are an indie writer or an indie artist in the comic book field, like you're cool. Like, like you're in, you're, you're, you're part of the club. You can have drinks with all the big names and hang out and chit chat and talk about the craft. Like there's just this sense of camaraderie that I really enjoyed in comics that you got almost from day one. Once you were in the trenches, it didn't matter if Marvel was publishing you or if you were going to Kinko's and printing out your comics and stapling them yourself. People looked at your comic based on the work itself. And I and I think, and, and maybe I'm being a little bit naive here, but it feels like, at least with my experience with theater, has been that there is respect for the the person who's kind of doing it on their own. Maybe not. Maybe maybe I'm a little naive there. But I do know in the book publishing world, it is rough. There is such intense gatekeeping between the published author, the traditionally published author, and the self-published author. And, and it, by and large, it exists because of the five, three major publishing corporations that have you know, it's just, it, it's weird. I mean, they used to, they don't use the phrase anymore, but they used to refer to it as vanity press, that if you self-published yeah. your work, it was, it was vanity press. I was like, wow, we would never say that in comics. We would never call it a vanity project. But I remember thinking that is really insulting to people who are putting all this work into this to be like, oh yeah, that's a little vanity project because you weren't good enough to get through the agents and the editors and the publishing company. So, um, so you're just doing this little thing, <laughs> but it's changing a yeah. little bit slowly, yeah. but surely. You know, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the publishing industry that much. I'm, I am yeah. self-published. Um, and in the realm of playwriting, there are a handful of play publishers who make up the biggest catalogs and send out the most plays and that's where you want your play to be done but you you it is the same kind of thing of like having gatekeepers you have to have the 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 largest productions at the biggest regional theaters or off broadway before they look at your stuff or you have to have a long running track record uh before they look at the stuff and uh so i for my own work i've i've decided that i'm following the self-publishing route at the moment just because I uh, I had a kid a couple of years ago and I was like, if I if something happens to me, all this stuff just dies in a drawer and uh, I'm gonna gonna put it out in the world and we'll see what happens. And nothing's much has happened except I have a nice little I have a nice little collection of books. <laughs> and, and you've put on some really great performances that people have enjoyed. so well yeah, yeah, yeah. so. <laughs> Well, and I even I think uh, about I was at a I was at a convention once and this guy who owned I won't throw his name out, but a guy who owns a very large chain of comic book stores got really mad at me. And he wasn't mad at me. It was the person next to me that had said something. And I guess he thought it came from me. And he was like, ah, like and he told me he's like, I can sell 50 copies of Spider-Man. I could only sell two copies of your comic book. And I and my only response was okay, sell two copies of mine. Like, cool. <laughs> like, like I'm not asking you to sell 50 copies of my comic. If you could sell two of mine, that's great. Sell two of them. Um, and, and I think that's the mentality of, of, of the creator. It's like, okay, yeah, I can't compete 
with Broadway. I can't compete with these things. But there's there's a small niche that works. And the weird thing about, uh, at least for novelists nowadays, the self-publishing world is it has completely changed now where it's, you will have six-figure writers, authors who are independent. They are making more money than the traditionally published authors. And there's even a small handful of seven-figure independent authors out there. And they're getting better percentages. Um, They're not having to share 20% with an agent. They're selling like crazy. And now, granted, this is sort of like the pyramid scheme where you get like a few people that are doing really well, and then they can be like, I was once like you. And um, and then everyone kind of wants to go for that. But, you know, it's – but the thing is, is at least proof of concept, there are people out there who are doing very well. Even the fact that Brandon Sanderson, I think he got $41.7 million from his Kickstarter as an author. Good night. I mean, oh, that's that's a good opening weekend for a movie. Yeah. Depends uh, on yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and he did that. And I think <laughs> I think the publishing world is going, oh, what's going to happen when some of our traditionally published writers are looking at the success of some of these independently published things and going, wait, why am I giving you this large chunk of my proceeds again? Like, why do I need you? And and we're not there yet, but I, I think that there is definitely enough out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember um, I like watching the Brandon Sanderson classes online. They're very the, good. They're very good. He's he's he he he's a he's a very good teacher, like as far as teaching it. And uh, I I haven't read any of his works actually, but I. I admire him, and and uh, I remember during the pandemic he made that announcement where he's like, "Yeah, over this time when we we've all been in quarantine, I I didn't just write one book, I wrote multiple books." Yeah, I think it was like four or five. It was insane. Yeah, something ridiculous, and I was like, I was like, "Well played, sir. Well played." I, I will say so the back thing in, about in oh, 2008. Yes. Yeah. Oh, don't mind me. I was going to ramble say- about Brandon Sanderson. No, ramble for a second. Uh, I was going to say, the thing about Brandon Sanderson, and I think this is something that writers can take from it, is he is a guy that's a good example of a person who does a lot of things good, and he does one thing great. And and I think that that's, I mean, it, it's sad to say, but if you're good at everything, you still may not may create a great work, but like there's always like a, an area where you kind of find your niche. And I think Brandon Sanderson is a person who's really good at creating what I would like to call fist pumping moments where you get really excited for the success of, of, of your protagonist, where they do something amazing and you're like, yeah, like heck yeah. Like, and, and I feel like he writes great moments of, of triumph and also failure, but like, there's just those moments that get you very excited as a reader. Everything else, his his writing, his craft, it's it's decent. Um, it's not great. It's good. But yeah, I think that he he's really good at that. And I think that's where he's built his audience. Is just it, it it's a fun read, and that's that's why. But yeah, kudos to him. But yeah, he, he's he's. <laughs> That guy, yeah, he's 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 rolling in it right now. And the wonderful thing is, is those online classes, they're free. I mean, anyone can watch those classes. Yeah, it's great, and yeah. and they're yeah. worth even more than uh, some of the ones you might pay for. There's a phrase for that. Somebody who has a broad, broad base of knowledge and skill base, but like dives T shape, T shape. I'm even yeah. doing it. It's T shape. It's a the T-shaped thing. Person. <laughs> it's that thing with the thing. It's a, a T-shaped, they call it a T-shaped, the phrase is a T-shaped person in it. In it I've, used, I've heard it used to describe somebody who has a very broad base of, of skills that they're, you know, equipped to do a lot of things and do them pretty well. But then they do a deep dive yeah. on one particular field or one particular niche. And, and uh, that's where they kind of get in the weeds and they go deep down, you know. So I think it's a pretty good phrase. Uh, t shaped person. <laughs> yeah. This is better than a, a I don't know, a, a, an O shaped person. Um, <laughs> so, 
I met you back in, I don't know, 2008, 2009. And at the time, I want to say you were writing journalism and playing chess. Yeah. <laughs> That's the things that I remember uh, the most about you. Did you want to get into journalism when you were younger or is was that a just kind of you just segued into it? I found out that I made more money with one feature article that I wrote for a magazine than I did in like five years of working in comics. <laughs> so I was like, oh, wow, I got paid really well for this. And so and so it, it started off almost entirely as a commercial thing because I was I was teaching at the time. And of course, you know, teachers get paid wonderful salaries and we never have to worry about money ever again. But oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I was I greedy. Rich. I'm a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I was teaching, and I could write stuff for magazines on the side, and um, the magazines that I was writing for paid um, about a dollar a word. Which, oh wow! Okay. Yeah. 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 I, yes, please, more of that. So, um, so I was able to write these feature articles, and I loved writing the feature stories because that was more words, and. Um, I built a great relationship with the writers that I knew and the editors there. So it was a thing that I kind of figured out I can do this and I do it well enough that a magazine will give me money for it. And um, and I, I wasn't taking that for granted. But the other thing was I started to realize that some of the best writers in Dallas were journalists. I just like as far as just craft, like they just – Nowadays, I would tell a person if they just want to become a good writer, I, I would almost tell them they should become a journalist, like become a journalism major, because there's something about the craft there that, um, yeah, I mean, if you don't know what kind of stories you want to write or you don't know what you want to do, I mean, the journalism field, is it dying? I don't know. I mean, there's always a need for people to write stories of our lives. And um but I just found that there was just some really great writers. And so part of it was just my attraction to writers like uh, Michael Mooney, who uh, does some writing. And he I think he still lives in Texas and Dallas area. Man, I loved going to have a drink with that guy. Like I learned so much just sitting and talking with him. And um, and so there were some writers that I just really got excited about. So I started doing that. And then I left teaching to do more journalism, but I did find out very quickly that just because I had more time on my hands did not mean they were going to send me more work. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I can write a feature now every month. And they're like, we don't need you to write a feature every month. We've got all these other starving journalists who need work too. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I wrote, 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 and then I ended up grabbing uh, work in marketing uh, because I, I did I did the journalism thing full time for about a year. And then I was like, this is nice and all, but I kind of like knowing where my paycheck's coming from. So, oh, OK, OK. Now, did you did you take journalism classes when you were in college or I took maybe like one class in college that was in journalism? And I think it was because I needed it to get my English degree. So okay. I don't know if I would have made a good newspaper writer, but the magazines, they'll take anyone. Um, no, they were um, – no, I, I learned some things. And honestly, there were some things that I was naive about uh, that I, I, I learned later through working with a really great editor, uh, Tim Rogers at D Magazine. Um, I, I credit if there's one person – who helped me improve as a writer, it, it was him. Uh, he was very good at not just telling you what he needed, but also helping you get there. And um, and so, yeah, a lot of respect for him. But I also learned some things about, like, you know, how to fact check your article and how to keep your sources. Because ultimately, um, you know, what's going to happen is, is someone's going to say something that they wish they hadn't said, and you're going to put it in your magazine, and they're going to be like, I didn't say that. And you've got to be able to have this stuff to prove, uh, yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> and, and so there was things about the journalistic aspects of it that, that I learned just by just by doing it, and that helped. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. I, I took a – I remember I took journalism classes back in high school and in, in college – 
I ran the I was the editor of the paper in college for um, a year as and before that I was just like a reporter, you know, for the school paper and uh, and coincidentally a cartoonist. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I, I I found out a cartoons are the only form of journalism that cannot be edited. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Cartoonist, what the cartoonist draws is what shows up in the paper. But uh, when I when I was in college, we used to have to literally cut out the layouts and put them down. I think we were doing, we were using like a page maker or all this front page or some one of those very old software programs. And I learned a bunch about graphic design as a byproduct of designing the newspaper. And years later, running a theater company, I'm like, oh my gosh, those, those lessons that snuck in under the table from, from being associated with journalism, there was a bunch of like peripheral things that have proven to be amazingly useful, like later on in life. But yeah, I, I agree. Journalism is a good root skill. Like it's like learning to play scales on the piano or something for, for writing and getting a point across and, and getting a message out. Yeah, it's interesting also because, I mean, you're right about that one thing about editing because it is a very difficult moment when you write an article and they don't, in the world of magazine writing, they don't have to ask your permission to rewrite something or to take something out. So you may get the final copy and be like, I, I didn't write that or like this whole beginning is completely changed and there's, it's kind of like they paid for it and they will tear it up as they need to. And it may be easier for them to just rewrite one of your sentences than it is to email you back and be like, we don't really like this sentence. Can you rework it? They're just, the editor is just going to go through and rework it. Yeah. That's instructive. Like that's incredibly instructive to go, okay, this was changed here. This was taken out. This was rewritten. And, you know, occasionally with features, you might have a little bit more freedom. You know, I, I butted heads a lot with, uh, not at D Magazine, but there was an editor at uh, the Dallas Observer that I butted heads with a lot. And um, ultimately, it was a situation where I was like, well, you can publish it, but don't put my name on it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and then they're like, okay, well, we, we don't want that because it, it looks weird for them. And so, yeah, it can get rough. But I think the other thing with journalism that, that helps is it does teach you courage as both as a writer and as a, a part, like you learn how to say the difficult things in uncomfortable situations. And, um, and I, cause I am by nature, not a person that wants to bother people, but, um, you, you learn that you, you have to kind of seek truth and be honest. And that stuff is so helpful when you're writing as well, because you go, okay, I'm going to write this thing and it's uncomfortable, but it's true. And so I, I have to I have to be true. And that that's you know, that's a lesson that I don't think a lot of writers realize earlier in their career is just how important it is to be true with their work. And I don't mean factually true, although that's important as a journalist. I mean like a emotionally true, you know, to where you get that honest moment. And and that's not always easy. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I, I can see that. I can totally see that. So you you stayed as a uh, besides doing journalism, you were a teacher at the time. Did you quit teaching around 2011, 2012? Yep, 2000, you, 2012 was my last time. Yeah. And you were a teacher for how long before that? A couple of years? Twelve years as a teacher. So oh, I started wow. in okay. 2000 and 2012 was my last year. So now we're marking up about 10 years now since I was a teacher. So, yeah. <laughs> so you, it's almost been as long not being a teacher as you worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, did you you were teaching high school, right? High school English? Yeah, I was English. And I also did, uh, towards the end, I taught creative writing, which was fun. And then there was a UIL ready writing group that I also worked with. And they were, that was fun. So, yeah, a lot of, a lot of writing, um, even though I myself had not yet written my own novel yet. Uh, I was still in there telling other people how to write. <laughs> oh man, bless your heart too. Uh, my wife teaches developmental English. Uh, yes. And I watch her grade papers and I watch her, her soul shrivel up every semester <laughs> uh, as she plows through students writing. And uh, 
There's no Scantron equivalent. Yeah. You have to read the writing. You have to read what they wrote. And uh, I was like, oh, Ruth, what? <laughs> I feel so bad for you. What a cumbersome way to a cumbersome way to to grade. Like you, you literally have to read everything, and it takes forever. It took her. It just takes her forever. Um, I mean, think uh, about it. If you have to grade one assignment over the weekend and it's like one page long and you have 125 students you're reading 125 paper pages yeah that you're having to edit and provide feedback <laughs> yeah 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 did you now did you do you have a degree in education what what made you become a teacher Is oh gosh it, was it the big old paychecks like yeah it was it was those big fat paychecks i now now we're going to get into some some deeper darker things in college, I actually wanted to be a pastor, and okay. what happened was my last year of college, I had a complete crisis of faith, or crisis is probably the not. I, I had this epiphany. I was like, oh, I don't really want to do this. Like, you know, most people change their major, like, you know, somewhere in the process. I had, like, degree in hand. I was going to go to seminary in the West Coast. I think either up in Seattle, there was also the seminary in Pasadena that I was looking at. I mean, I was already taking some online classes. I was so ready to do it. And I kind of was like, nope. <laughs> and so I had an English degree, but the English degree was to get me ready for seminary. And I um, I was like, nope. So what can you do with an English degree? So the, I, I started applying at high schools. And at that time, I was very fortunate in that there was a teacher shortage. So they were able to take me on on an emergency contract with the understanding that I would take night classes to get uh, my um, education. Emergency certification. Yeah. Another lifesaver. But no, I, I completely, um, yeah, I, I, I avoided becoming a man of the cloth and became a, a, a person of, of, of words and letters. Um but yeah, I've, I've been all over the place. Eventually, I'll figure out what I want to do when I grow up. But um... <laughs> well, you you stumbled on it, Dick, because what I'm doing is drawing a picture of your past because you you seem to have bounced around a lot before you, yeah. we get to the present, and <laughs> and so I'm asking you about this stuff from from the bygone days because it it paints a picture of like. Well, you went down this path, and then you <laughs> turned nope. a corner, and you went down this other path, and then you went down this way. Um, yeah. Do you ever miss teaching? Do you ever miss the teaching? Uh, yeah, yeah, quite a bit. Um, I, I loved teaching, but it was one of those things where after 12 years, it was like, okay, time for some new adventures. Uh, I just I, I found that I was kind of in a rut. I The pay was great, but I, but I, but I just got greedy, and... Uh, no, it, it was after 12 years. I was like, it's it's time. I, I, I want to try some new things. Um, but I do miss it. If I could if I could go back, I don't know. I, I don't want to say if I could go back to teaching high school because uh, that is a that is a special calling right there, my friends. but it's uh, it's much different nowadays too, with uh, cell phones and yeah. social media and contemporary students. Yeah, so uh, I, I don't know if I could keep, if I could keep teaching in some capacity, I, I would, but, um, but the, yeah, it was time. It was time to move on, but I do miss it. Okay. You're, you're a very good teacher though. I've taken your marketing class and I oh, uh, talked to you about Shakespeare and you, you have a, an online Shakespeare class. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you're still, you're still teaching just yes, I di am. different format, different format. Yeah, yeah. I'm not surrounded by, uh, these 15, 16 year olds. Um, as they're asking me when I'm going to get their papers back to them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which they do, which yeah. they, 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 they do. Yeah. They, they okay, want to know. So you turned, uh, so right around the time you stopped teaching, you turned to short stories uh, mm -hmm. and you made a collection called we miss all the great parties, which is excellent. Um, Thank you. And you, I remember when you developed this because you kind of created this installment series mm -hmm. that you sent out to your your email list, and you finally collected them together at the end into like a paperback, into like a you know a full book. And uh, the Dryad's Crown is uh, similar, mm -hmm. not exactly the same way, but you're doing it in in this kind of uh, increments. Like uh, at the moment, you're doing it as novellas. 
um, that are going to build up into a mighty, mighty volume. Yes. Um, what, what did you learn from that process? What, why, A, I thought it was very innovative at the time. Like I was like, oh, look at, look at this. I'm getting a short story in my email every month from David. Yeah. Uh, this is fantastic. But then I was very surprised and pleased at the end when you're like, it's, it's now a full book. And, yeah. and you had a book launch party and, and it's now part of your body of work. Like yeah. it, it was not an exercise. I mean, it was an exercise, but it wasn't mm -hmm. purely an exercise. There was a, a product basically at the end of it. Would you, how did you get to that idea? And then what did you learn from that idea? And is it, is it something that kind of uh, influenced how you're doing your current project? Yeah, you know, I hadn't even thought about the parallels between the two, but it absolutely is. I wonder if it's just my experience with comic books, that sort of serial, serialization, where you're like, you read something and then a month later, you're going to read more of the story. And then a month later, you're going to read more of the story. And there's this idea of like, oh, well, if I can keep sending people smaller bits, it keeps me accountable because it puts me on a deadline, which maybe harkens to my journalism background where I'm like, deadlines are good. Deadlines are what keep the words flowing. Um, and so it, it builds in that deadline. But then it was also like, I can stay top of mind with people that, you know, every, every month they're going to get a new short story. Um, and then with the um, novellas for the Dryad's Crown, it's like, okay, if I'm releasing something every three to four months, there's a new email that I can send out. There's a new announcement that I can make and I can kind of stay, stay present. The funny thing is, though, I don't know if it's a good way. I don't think it's it's sustainable over years and years. I, I think that rapid release can burn you out. And even with the short stories, you know, you'd come up with a short story idea, you'd write it. And then after you wrote the story, you're like, like exhausted almost because you're like, oh, now I got to write another one. And, and, and so there's there is a little bit of you know, there, there's a cool down period with your writing and, and it's hard to, it's hard to be automatic with that stuff. Like I'm just going to spit something out every three months. Uh, at least with the Dryad's Crown, it was one story. So I kind of already knew where it was going. But I think that once you've completed the thing, then you go, okay, now I'm going to do it some more, but maybe just once a year I'll release a novel instead of releasing the novel broken up over several months. So I think that I think it, it it taught me how to finish because I remember early on thinking I'm like novels are just impossible. I don't know how anyone writes them. And then, you know, the Dryad's Crown will be around 700 pages. And it's like, holy, how did I do that? Well, I did it because I didn't do it all at once. Like I broke it up into pieces <laughs> and then you put it all together and you're like, oh, wow, I actually and I, I'm sure you're like that, too, where you look back at your sort of collection of work and you go, oh, I actually have written quite a bit of stuff here. <laughs> yeah, it sneaks up on you. It sneaks yeah. up on me. Uh, I I have just done that recently, just before the um, just a couple of days ago, I released a collection on Amazon of uh, holiday plays, which I have been attempting to put out for the last three years in September when mm. theaters would be looking for programming for the holidays. And for the last three years, I have completely failed to do that. And finally, I was like, all right, just do it, put it out and yeah. then market it next year. <laughs> like, yeah. like, let it be online. It can just live there. And, and then next, the end of next summer, I'll make a uh, concentrated effort to like, tell people that it's, that it's out there. That it's out more. there, yeah. But yeah, no, I, it, it's, it's weird, the cumulative effect. Like I, I had imposter syndrome for the longest time where I was like, I call myself a playwright, but I only write so many plays. And, and then after years of that, looking back going, oh, you, you actually have written quite a few plays. And uh, it just over the natural course of time, it's built up. Yeah, I want to talk about the Dryad's Crown, but before we get to that, um, I want to do a little segue into Tammy True. Yes. Because uh, I think it was in 2015, 2016, something like that, that you mm -hmm. you you knew um, a old-timey burlesque performer, like old-timey from like the 60s. Yes. Nancy Myers, was that her first name? Or is that her real name? Yes. Yeah, Nancy Myers. Um 
and but she went by the stage name Tammy True. Mm-hmm. How did you meet her? And then how did you end up writing her biography? Well, um, that came about because of D Magazine. I was working on an article about um, burlesque in Dallas because the burlesque scene was picking up. And so I got a chance uh, to interview some lovely people who are active in Dallas burlesque. And as I was getting their stories, I ended up, um, one of them, uh, a friend Shoshana was like, oh, I know the the woman who used to headline at Jack Ruby's Carousel Club. And I was like, really? And it's like, yeah, would you like to talk to her? And I was like, I would love to talk to her. And so uh, it was around Christmas time and I, I, I got her a poinsettia and went to her house and, and, and I met her and we we talked for hours. And I realized after talking with Tim, I was like, okay, it either is a story about Dallas Burlesque or it's a story about Tammy True. It's 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 one or the other. It can't be both. And ultimately, I decided to tell the story about Tammy True and use some of the Dallas content as almost like backdrop and context. Um, but as I was after I wrote the article, and I was very proud of that article, um, I I then found out that there was like stuff that Tammy had not told me. Like, like there was whole sections of her life that were skipped in that article, like the time that she um, like shot her ex-boyfriend. And like, I was like, what? She's like, oh, yeah, I tried to kill him. And I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> um, and, you know, just some crazy stuff like she um, she got propositioned by Tony Bennett. And I was like, what, really? I was like. And we didn't put that in there. Um, and so ultimately we we're like, all right, let's just, let's just. And so we spent about three years just meeting up at her house and I had the tape recorder running. And I would say that the book, uh, The Wild and Wayward Tales of Tammy True, it's not my best written work. A lot of it is just transcribed conversations. Uh, but as an artifact, of a person's life, I, I think that it is exactly what we needed to do. And so I'm very happy with it. But it was one of those things where, you know, I was trying to like transition into writing short stories and writing prose. And 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 so I was kind of in a way going, all right, this stuff is great and all, but I'm, you know, it, it, it felt like I was kind of multitasking here. And it was just because of my friendship with uh, Nancy Myers that that work got finished. And yeah, it, it's um, it, it, it was an interesting experience, but mostly I'm just kind of glad that I got to spend a few years getting to know her before she passed and, and getting to hear her story. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a wild thing to realize that, you know, when we leave this world, there aren't many people who know your story and, and the chance to get to share it with someone um, is a gift both for the person who shares it and the person who receives it. And so, yeah, it was such a wonderful thing to be able to talk with her. Um, looking back on the book, there's probably a better book hidden in there, but as a primary source, yeah, cause I, I didn't, I didn't expand upon it a lot. I didn't embellish. I didn't, I didn't take the characters and, and, and turn them into fictional characters that you can kind of have do other things. I mean, we stuck pretty much to, these were the conversations we were having. Um, but as just a piece of her life, yeah, it, it was really cool. Huh. Yeah, I I went to the uh, book release kind of event you did. Both of you guys were on stage and doing readings of the book and talking about it and stuff. And what I noticed really directly was that you guys seemed like buddies. Like you yes. – yeah, you genuinely seem like friends. And I was like, oh, that's great. Like, that's great. Like, it, she's not just the subject of the writing. No. She she was you got you became friends with her over the couple of years uh, of writing the book. Yeah. And, and when she passed, uh, I was I was able to speak at her funeral. So that was that was uh, a tremendous honor uh, that her family uh, allowed me to do that. But, yeah, it was uh, it, it was great. And, and part of it also was just. Nancy in general is just a hilarious per like she is the she kind of person character. Oh yeah, she's the kind of person you want to go like I remember when I 
tagged along, uh, and we grabbed some drinks after one of the uh, solo fest performances. And I tell you, every one of those people were people I wanted to go have a beer with. Like they were just such <clears throat> interesting people. And I think Nancy very well fit into that. She's a person of the theater. I mean, burlesque, particularly the way it was done back then, was very much it was theater. It was it was a holdover of the vaudeville tradition. Uh, it, it was comedy. It was entertainment. And yeah, she very much was that kind of person, and which made meant her absolutely wonderful to hang out with. I tell you, here's what I think we should do. I have one more question, and I'm going to call it the end of part one. Yes. And then and then you and I will take a break. Okay. And then I'm going to recall you, and we'll do a part two. Sounds about good. That. I, I love uh, it. So, because I the rest of my questions kind of pertain to now, like the right. present, except for this last one. And it looks like even if I edit this down, it's going to be a two-parter. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who knew that we like to talk so much? I know, I know. Very verbose uh, duo here. Hey, I absolutely love your TEDx talk. Yes. The the unfortunate appeal of the heroic idiot. <laughs> I just wanted to because I have the chance. I wanted to get the story behind that. What? <laughs> how did you get invited to do a TEDx talk? And how did you choose this as a subject? And and I'll just say right out. It's you're you were preaching to the choir. Uh, <laughs> when I was watching it, I'm like, yeah, yes, yes. So how'd that come about? Um, it came about because I had written an article for Medium.com, and it went viral. It was um, it was a very clickbaity title about uh, how a TV sitcom triggered the downfall of Western civilization, and it was a very sort of bombastic take on the television show Friends and about the celebration of idiocracy, essentially. And the the article did very, very well. And that article is what got me the ticket to TED because they're like, oh, you seem like a person who knows things. Uh, What would you like to talk about? And because that one article got me there, I couldn't just reread that article, but I essentially had to kind of you know, it's like a band, like do this again, but differently. And so my challenge was what would be the the natural sequel to that first article? And what I really came about as I've been thinking about historically, how we celebrate these people that just sort of without a formal education did these amazing things. But the thing you realized is none of that is accurate the people who just sort of came out of nowhere were actually tremendously well-educated, tremendously privileged, uh, had education, experience. I mean, like these, these are people who didn't just like, they didn't just burst forth from Zeus's head fully formed. They were, they put in the work. And so I, I really felt like I needed to talk about what it really means to put in the work as a creative. It just so happens that Donald Trump got elected the same week that I did that TED Talk. So there was a lot of people in that audience that even though I never mentioned Donald Trump, a lot of people were taking, when I talked about how the idiot wears the hat, um, they were thinking about the red MAGA hat. <laughs> and it was, right. it was, right. it was cathartic. It, it was a cathartic moment because I think a lot of us were still shell shocked um, at that point. Not to not to make light of PTSD, but we definitely all felt a little bit surprised at what had happened. And so, yeah, it was just so happens that my talk came out right around that time. <laughs> so, yeah, I was good able timing, to good timing. Yeah, yeah it, it it definitely seemed of the zeitgeist at the moment, and it it uh it touched on. I imagine it spoke to creative people and uh, uh, people that think about stuff across the board, like across the board. Yeah. Uh, And even like, I know we've spent a long time talking about my writing past, but like how funny would it be for someone to read the Dryad's Crown and be like, wow, for a debut novelist, this guy can really write a book. Like, well, yeah, I, I may be debuting this book, but there's about 20 years worth of mistakes and mess ups and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and hard lessons that yeah, got me yeah. to write a, the bulk of the passable, iceberg is under the water. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's so funny that like, yeah, you look at someone's history, you go, well, okay. Yeah. Like David wrote like 2000 pages worth of comic books. Um, like half of those got published in some way, shape or form. Like, yeah. Okay. Maybe he should be better than he is now. Like, why are we giving him this much credit? <laughs> It could double back on you. Yeah, yeah, really. Like, really, this is this is where you are. I'm like, yeah, sorry. I just wanted to say, like, yeah, your TED talk was great. And that about wraps it up for this uh, interview with uh, David Hopkins, part one. I will continue uh, my discussion with uh, Mr. Hopkins in the following episode, uh, number thirty-seven. So please check that out. Uh, it should be out in the next week or two. So come back and, and uh, have a listen. Uh, as always, my name is Brad McIntyre. You can find information about me at bradmcintyre.com. You can uh, look up David Hopkins at his website, thatdavidhopkins.com. And uh, both of those will be linked in the show notes, uh, as well as a lot of the stuff we talked about. Um, I'll put a link to uh, David's TED Talk and uh, those Brandon Sanderson uh, videos we were talking about and etc, etc, etc. Anyway, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, have a good day.